Today, answers matter more than ever before. That's why IBM is helping businesses manage customer questions with Watson Assistant. It's conversational AI designed to work for any industry. Let's put smart to work. Visit ibm.com slash Watson Assistant. 710 ESPN presents The Experience with Laverne Cusack. Where we go beyond the play and focus on athletes, fans, events, and the biggest issues that inspire and shape our lives. Here's the host of the experience, the Fern Cusack. Fern Cusack. Welcome to 710 ESPN. So happy to be speaking with Kat Nair. She's director of special education. And you know what? I'm sure a lot of you are surprised that you're a teacher uh, during this COVID-19 and this quarantine. And Kat is going to tell us all the things that we can do to help keep our children at the level they need to be um, and learn what they need to learn. Kat, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Tell us about your background and how you got into special ed. Um, Well, my first career was as a professional dancer, and I was working with children in a Title I school, teaching them to dance. And I was a choreographer for a television show here in L.A., and I enjoyed working with the children more than I did working in the studios. So I went back to school and got a, deg- a master's degree in teaching um, and then moved on through Teach for America. I was given a position in special education just as a teacher in the classroom and then became the lead teacher and then the director of special education. Wow, that's a great journey. For me, it seems like it was quick. Did it feel quick for you? It was very quick. And I think that sometimes happens to people when they're in their second career. You have a lot of experience from life that sort of sets you up in another setting. Um, And I had leadership roles when I worked as a dancer in in television. So I think I'm naturally somebody that leans towards leading a team. What type of dance did you teach? Um, Well, I'm ballet trained. Uh, So ballet was the basis of all of the dance that I did. Um, Worked professionally in many different mediums throughout the world, really, as you can probably tell from my accent, I'm English. So my career started in England and in Paris. And then I moved to America, actually, just 20 years ago, I just celebrated my 20 years in America. um, And danced with several companies. Thank you. Um, Danced with several different companies here. And then, you know, as the body starts to get tired, I moved into choreography, um, and uh, was an associate choreographer for America's Got Talent dances in schools. Uh, many of our um, schools here, my, my daughter went to a Title I school and they were not able to provide dance classes or very much of the arts at all. So I volunteered um, and I was involved in putting on plays at the end of every trimester. Um, and that was when I really fell in love with teaching kids and teaching them to dance more than anything. Um, so yeah, it's been a, it's been a fun ride and a fun transition. So dance for me is such a great sport and especially ballet. Can you talk about that transition and what skills transformed into teaching? Absolutely. I strongly believe that having dance in your life from very young uh, teaches you discipline and resilience. Uh, It teaches you poise and confidence and it gives you a vehicle to express yourself. So many of my friends who were professional dancers, we've all moved into different areas of life, but most of us are very successful. And I think that it comes from that discipline that is um, that tenacity that is ground into you by that very strict ballet teacher that you have from very small. Um, and, you know, ballet is painful. It's not, it's not yes. an easy <laughs> direction to take. Um, so if you can put yourself through that and still come out in one piece and loving, you know, movement and what you, what you have done with your life, I think it sets you up to be a good leader. Um, I'm a strong advocate for particularly students with special needs having dance in their curriculum. I think it's really important that our students with special needs have another area to express themselves. And oftentimes we see our students with special needs excel in that environment because it's given them something that they can do physically. And it's a, it's a, a natural form for them to take. And it reduces the, their effect on how uncomfortable they are during presentation. So it gives them a tool that they can use to express themselves. So I'm a huge advocate for that. And I love schools that have dance in their curriculum. 
Absolutely. Some of the like the stereotypes of being a ballet dancer, like, you know, we all grew up with that, with, you know, the pain and with your toes and everything. Does that ring true for you? That like the stereotypes of being a ballet dancer that's portrayed in the media? I think it does in many ways. Um, I mean, it, it, it can be portrayed as a real horror show. It wasn't a horror show for me. I loved it. Um, but there were moments of it being painful. Yeah. Um, and I do think I'm particularly tenacious and I don't give up easily. Um, I think it gives you a rare discipline when you've had dance in your life from, from any age, really, but particularly when you, you're given that opportunity when you're very young. With me, like I took dance in college and stuff, and I realized really quickly that for some reason, my brain didn't switch around. So you have the instructor at the front of the class facing you. And then the instructor is telling you to do these certain moves, but I couldn't turn it around in my head. So I was always opposite from what the teacher was doing. Do you understand that? what that is? I totally understand. And that's really fascinating to hear because so many, we learn so much about our students with special needs in the dance studio when they're dancing and they're, um, you know, exactly what you said. So if you, if we have a child who cannot reverse, who's not reversing what the teacher is doing, it's not making sense to them. Perhaps that also is something that's happening in the classroom. So their skill of taking information from a board or a screen and putting that onto paper may be marginalized because of the way their brain works. All of us, our brains all work completely differently. Um, So we can learn from that and understand people and how their brains work and process information more readily when we're in a a larger environment where we're seeing the whole body move. So it's fascinating that you would bring that up. Um, I do think that um, that is one of the things that we really struggle with in schools is that we design curriculum for a very small band of students and students who don't actually function in that way just fall by the side and you have to have other mediums for them to interact within and show what they can do so that we understand more how we can fit them into that narrow band of curriculum. Yes, absolutely. And and for me, I was so discouraged that I quit the class because catch on. And <laughs> I know, which is really sad, but um, that goes into, again, the processing in the brain and, you know, the, a lot with the synapses it does with dance and music and mathematics and all of that. So when you approach a, a child with special needs, how do you go about doing that? Well, um, all students before they actually have uh, what we call an, an IEP, which is an individualized education plan. They have to qualify through assessment for, for services, for support in the classroom. And w- different ways that we qualify students are we, they have different eligibilities. So some students may have a specific learning disability, which is that processing disorder. Some students may have an attention deficit. Some students may be on the autism spectrum. Some students may just have a speech and language deficit or an auditory deficit. So that assessment process helps us figure out, okay, where is this student struggling? What is difficult for this child? Uh, I actually wish we could do it for every single child in school because all of us, if you dig deep enough, you can find a deficit. We all have a, a, a weaker area in which we process. And I would love for everybody to know what their weakness is and sort of take away this stigma <laughs> around special education and just understand that we all learn completely differently. However, that said, if you are a student who has qualified for special needs, then you need um, really concentrated effort from the adults around you to understand the pieces of a curriculum that you may not process effectively. So what we do is we look at the data to see, for example, this student has auditory processing, which means that anytime they hear something, it takes longer for the brain to process it. Oftentimes, these kids are really, really bright, um, and that's how we qualify them because they're so bright, but their disability is impacting them, so they're not doing well in the classroom. So we want to find that discrepancy. Um, Once we've found what's causing that discrepancy, we have to work with that. So a child with auditory processing, we would want to look in the classroom and see, okay, everything that this this child is required to process auditorily. We need to change that so there's also a visual to accompany that auditory input. 
Um, and then we find the child is suddenly being able to access the curriculum. In dance, that's very important that if we see a child who is really, really visual, we often see them function very, very well in the dance studio. But oftentimes they don't process with the music and the visual at the same time. They really struggle with that. And the music puts them off and can send them into an agitated state. And then we have a behavioral situation. So we just have to find exactly like the right balance of visual stimulation and lowering the auditory stimulus or vice versa, depending on what the student's strength is. Wow, very fascinating. So what are some of the techniques and skills that a parent should know in navigating the learning for a special needs child? That's such a good question. Um, hopefully, the parents or the families of the child that are raising or giving care for the child now will have been informed around their IEP. And, you know, most of the schools that I work with are very good at educating the parents around what their child's disability is. Um, obviously, parents are not teachers and they're not specialists, and many of them have not been exposed to what it's like to teach their child. And the secret to teaching is really structure. It's understanding what the child needs and creating a structure for the child. Um, that's why schools are successful because, and why we have many good teachers because they've created a structure that makes it easy for a child to learn. Um, the challenging thing for parents is at home, there's no structure. And so, especially during COVID, where parents are not getting up to go to work at a regular time, they're not leaving the house to go to a job. It's different people in the home. There's, you know, it's, there's frightening things going on outside of the home. Families are more stressed. It's very, very difficult for those kids to find structure. There's no way that I, you know, I could have 25 children come into my home and be able to teach them without structure. But I can have 25 children come into my classroom because my classroom is structured in such a way that they are going to learn through that structure. Uh, so I would say the first thing that families teaching from home need to do is create a structure and scaffold that structure every single day so that the child understands what the expectations are of them during their learning during the day. Okay, if so the family doesn't know very much about their child's eligibility, their, you know, their disability, then I would really encourage them to reach out to the staff at the school to gain better understanding and look into the IEP and see which accommodations the teachers have in the classroom to support those children and then implement them at home. So with with my son, we were given a structure from 8 a.m. to I think like 1.30, I believe. But that's impossible when we're both working as well and trying to fit I mean, his instruction is top priority for us, but sometimes I have a deadline where I have to be on a call or something. So then there's tension within the family of, well, he has to be on this schedule. And it's like, well, we can't do that schedule. How do you talk to parents about navigating that? Yeah. I mean, parents need to be really kind to themselves and, and schools need to be very, very <laughs> understandable. Because this is, a, we're asking a lot of you. We really are. We're asking a lot of our families right now, and we're asking a lot of our teachers. Um, and the most important thing is that you all come out of this sane, that you are still strong and healthy after this situation is over, and that your child feels um, successful despite the challenges. So, primarily, if it's not working for you, then you need to find what is going to work for you and, and modify it. Um, that seems like an awfully long day that you're being asked to structure for learning. You know, at, in school, we can structure a day, a full day of learning because we have recess and we have art and we have music and we have playtime. And, you know, we have all different things going on throughout the day so we can structure the day. I think it's important that you talk to whoever is, you know, providing the scheduling. Um, and request that there is some flexibility in there for you. It's so important that you are able to fit in what you can, when you can. Um, a lot of things that we, the schools I work with have been doing is providing recordings of teachers teaching so that the kids can watch the recording when it's convenient for the parent. Um, other things that we are, we're doing to support parents is 
to do Zoom calls and schedule very small groups at a time which is appropriate for the parent. Um, obviously, we can't accommodate every single person in the classroom, but I think everybody just has to be super kind to themselves right now and understand that even if the expectation is eight in the morning until one thirty in the afternoon, that's a really long day. Um, and, you know, perhaps your child can learn what is expected in just a couple of hours it, later in the day when you have got time to sit with them. Oh, absolutely. I have a couple friends that are, you know, they're single parent families and the other part of the family is like, I can get this done in two hours. How come it takes you six hours to do this? And she's like, this is what the teacher's telling me to do. So that's what I'm going to do. And it's a lot of friction and a lot of stress. So how can we go about creating a structure that is right for us and our child at the time? I think you have to start slowly and have very minimal expectations to start with and really get to know your child and what the child is able to accomplish in the time that you have to work with them. Now, our older kids are much more independent and should be able to work on their own. And they're more um, effective with technology now. And most of our older students have had technology in the classroom. So a lot of their curriculum hasn't changed that much. So you can trust them a lot more to do their work by themselves. But with our younger kids, you know, kids under 10, it's very difficult for them to access what teachers are asking them to do without the help of a parent um, or an adult who is with them. Um, I think it's important to look at, okay, let's try this for half an hour and see how the student does. If the student does well with half an hour, maybe stick to half an hour for a few days and then say, okay, I'm going to up it to 45 minutes. Let's see how we do with 45 minutes and then an hour. Honestly, for children under 10, I wouldn't recommend pushing to do too much more than two hours of work every day. We're in in very challenging times. Um, Teachers are learning teachers are trying so hard. They're learning what works and what doesn't right now. And they're really doing the absolute best they possibly can. And they're so driven to keep the kids on track that sometimes in their enthusiasm, they're giving an awful lot of information to families. But I think that families need to give themselves permission to reduce the amount of time that, that the child is working during the day and really prioritizing mental health making sure that they're keeping up with their work as much as possible, but really getting to know their child and know what's realistic. From 8 to 1.30 is not going to work for everybody. In fact, it probably would work for very few students. With my son's school, he has Zoom calls, almost scheduled Monday through Friday, maybe Monday through Thursday, but each is a different topic. And one of the things, just like you mentioned, one of the things is – a virtual field trip. So they took a virtual field trip to a farm and learn how to milk a cow, or uh, they took a virtual field trip to Mars, Oh, which was really amazing. My son loved it. I loved it too, but they also have a dance class, music, music, and dance. And you can totally see the difference. I mean, with the dance class, the child gets up and moves and dances and learns different genres of music. And uh, they're really excited. Yeah. I really think that with this new platform of virtual learning, teachers are going to realize that they have to provide something that gets kids up and moving. Um, It's exhausting being on a Zoom call. I'm sure you know. Uh, as an adult, you know, I it, you feel like you get sucked into technology in the morning and spat out at the other end of the day, and it's exhausting. Yes. Um, for kids, it's really tiring too. So they need fun things to do to get up and move around. And as we advance with technology, we're seeing more and more teachers get super creative. Um, it's wonderful that your child's school has dance, uh, and you know that should be included every single day. And they need they need brain breaks so that they can move around and just let go because otherwise they're just glued into the technology for the whole morning or afternoon and and they can't think anymore they go numb 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and one thing that we've noticed is that, so when we're doing the studies, my son goes into a uh, fidgety mode where he's, he wants to go underneath the table, come up blah, blah, and we're like, okay, stop. Let's take a break for five minutes and come back. And he's fine. Yeah. Well, that's what we do in school as well. You know, for our, our, our kids are fidgety. It's really difficult to go into a classroom and sit at a desk <laughs> and not move and do, not do anything. The kids want to fidget, you know, and that's why in the classroom we have a rug. Come to the rug and sit on the rug and we'll do some class here and then we'll stand up and we'll move back to our table. and We'll do some more work at the table. Um, now it's recess time. You know, we want kids moving around. Uh, you know, a big secret of our for our fidgety kids often is uh, our teachers will give them errands to run or things to carry to sort of wear them out so that they're not as fidgety. But something that you can do as well to keep a child attending is maybe um, have them seated on a chair that they can move around on so that maybe there's a soft cushion on it and they can wiggle themselves rather than a hard surface or maybe some occupational therapy tools, which are like fidgets, things that they can squeeze while they're sitting um, or even a Velcro. You know, if there's a, a strong Velcro underneath the, the table where they're sitting and they can run their hands back and forth on the on the feel of the Velcro, just that sensory input can really um, help a child stay focused. Uh, but you need things that are close by. So you want to have like a maybe a squeezy ball or some something, even a soft toy that they can touch. But those kind of things around to keep them attending, but really giving that sensory input that helps them stop fidgeting. What are some other things we can do, especially if our child does have special needs, maintaining that sense of connectedness with the teacher and with you as a parent and the child? Yeah, I think I do think that our most successful teachers are those who are able to reach out to families and children more than ever. That is the most important thing, the connection um, and that that level of trust and familiarity. Um you know, a lot of our job as teachers right now is to teach our families how to do our work. Um, and we need to build relationships to be able to do that and be very, very kind to our parents because they haven't trained to be teachers. And teaching is an incredibly difficult job, as I'm sure more and more parents are appreciating now. Um, so we just need to be kind. Honestly, the, the, the most success that we have seen with our families is when we've helped them structure a day for their child that is reasonable. That's not one size fits all. Like the whole class has to be online at this time or the whole class has to be working for this many hours a day, but more like, you know, Tommy needs to do 30 minute increments of work and then he needs 30 minutes off. So how about we do three sessions of 30 minutes for him? And these are the things we want you to do in those three 30-minute sessions and then give him 30 minutes of break in between. Um, you know, a lot of our families are still working. Um, and our kids, oftentimes we're calling to provide them with support or services or instruction. And they're in transition from home to home. You know, they're going to the babysitter or they're in the car or they're in, sometimes even on the bus. Um, so we, as teachers, we have to get creative with things that we can do to help the kids um, learn while they're in transit and do small little incremental things that keep their brains alive and moving um, so that they don't lose any of the information that we've already managed to teach them this school year. So talk about the feeling of the the movement, the for instance, a child doing sports, uh, doing some sort of physical activity and how that translates or can be in, in addition to the work environment, the educational environment? Well, physical activity is, you know, even as adults, we know it, the endorphins that come along with physical activity are pretty remarkable if you get it right. If you're not, yeah. active, <laughs> if you're not being active when you're exhausted or, you know, you're not taking it to the extreme, but it can be really beneficial to adults as well. So the same goes for stu for children, but they really need a lot of physical breaks. And this design that we have for school is not actually ideal for our students to be sitting for as long as they are. And our teachers are finding more and more that we need to find physical stimulus for our students because they are sitting on technology for 
for many parts of their day. Oftentimes kids go home and they're playing video games or they're on the computer or they're maybe on their parents' phone. The parent is still working at night. They may be in a mm-hmm. restaurant. I'm sure you've seen when you go to restaurants, a lot of our kids are on technology now. So schools have to sustain that physical movement for our kids so that their bodies are not only healthy and responding appropriately to the the instruction that they're receiving, but that our kids learn to self-regulate. Um, for us as adults, we know that, you know, we've been sitting for a long time. Okay, we need to stand up and get outside and go for a walk. Oftentimes we neglect that, if especially while we're working on Zoom all day, we may well say, oh, I don't, I'm not going to, I'm going to miss my lunch today. I'm not going to go on a walk. I'm not going to do, you know, my 10 minute break here. I've got another meeting. I'm behind. I'm 10 minutes late. I'm just going to keep going. Well, we can't do that with our kids. We have to make sure that those breaks are built in because they don't know how to self-regulate yet. So we have to really intentionally design time for to literally blow off steam and run around, do something physical, get outside, uh, use their muscles so that their muscles are actually physically growing rather than just sort of withering away as they sit in front of the computer. Um, You know, obesity is also such a a terrifying prospect for many of our students, um, especially with the introduction of technology. So Right now, it's especially important. Um, I know all of us as adults are feeling like we're gaining pounds as we're sitting at home during COVID. So it's it's important that our kids get that chance to run around and burn some calories. The experience never stops. stops. On your station, 710 ESPN. Here's Laferne Cusack. Kat Mayer is the director of special education, and she has all what you need. Surprise, you're a teacher. Insight into virtual teaching and learning. Now, Kat, I know you worked with the Gates Foundation, and they do a lot for children and families around the world. Tell us about that work and what you did. Yeah, they came to visit um, some of our schools. There were 60 schools chosen throughout the country. Um, who were doing uh, good work with students with special needs. And they wanted to come and study what it was that all of these schools had in common um, so that their students with special needs were were excelling as well as they were. Um, so a team came from Gates and they um, reviewed our schools and looked at the programming that we do for our students with special needs and the attention to detail that we provide for those kids. Um, and it was fascinating to be a part of that and see the the studies that they had done on our kids and our teachers and what everybody had to say, and then compare that to everybody else in the nation who's being successful, and then really find some common themes um, among those schools that as to why everybody's doing so well. Um, the The number one thing that they found is that all of us as schools prioritize special education. So it's not just an afterthought. It is, there is somebody in all of these schools who is managing special education. Um, somebody who is sitting at the table with other leaders advocating for special education, leading the team, having a voice for the team, making the team feel heard, um, building relationships with families and community among those families, and really pushing for special education to be a priority in schools. Um, And yeah, it was a great honor to be a part of uh, their research. And then they asked three of the schools to speak. We were one of the schools uh, to speak at the convention uh, and just really speak to uh, our experience with the the research. And then what we learned from being a part of the research program, what we learned we were doing well and what we learned that we weren't doing as well. Uh, So yeah, it it was a real honor to be a part of that. They're doing a lot of good things. I think in this uh, era of COVID-19 that the what I see transpiring is transparency and communication and community, like you're saying. And without that, you know, you're, you're not able to build the trust and build new ways of thinking and communicating and, you know, education, right? Right. I think you hit the nail on the head with the word trust. We have to build trust in our schools, in our communities, um, among our families and our teachers and our 
teams. We have to stop pointing fingers at people and saying, you didn't do this, you didn't do that, and helping each other so that we are all working together. I really do look as educators as an extended member of a child's family. They spend hours every day with that teacher and they will remember them for the rest of their lives. It's important that the family family embrace that um, and that we all work together and come together to support the students. Uh, There's so much that can be done. If you can get a family on board to support a child, you can do so much. And it's not that we're we're requiring families to do, you know, so many different things to they're already doing. It's just gaining a deeper understanding of their child, Uh, understanding that, you know, the child needs to be in school on time in the morning because if they come late to school, then they can't catch up throughout the day. And it's really just you have to get up five minutes earlier in the morning um, to get your kid here on time. And, you know, do you need me to call you in the morning to wake you up? How can I help you? It's so important that your child is here. I'll do anything. You want coffee when you come through the door? What do you need from me? I've, you know, I've called parents in the mornings to make sure that they're coming to school on time. I've texted kids. You know, sometimes it's my child just won't get up. So I will then say, okay, here's a checklist for your child that he has to do every morning. If he does this every morning for five days, we'll have a pizza party at lunchtime. You you know, you you have to incentivize the kids to to do whatever it takes to to get the most out of their school day. And parents love it. As soon as you start investing in their child, if they know that you love some their child, they love their child more than anything. If they know that you also as an educator love their child and care about their future, they're going to work with you. And that's what builds trust. And that's when we really see a difference in how our kids learn. And the, and the littlest things like a star, a sticker, like yeah. that blows the kids' minds. It really does. And the parents too, you know, even I, I always struggle with our kids who who aren't doing well in school and who are really, you know, struggling, whether it be behaviorally or academically. And the poor parents are always getting these calls like, Joey did this today. Joey's not doing well. He hasn't done this. He hasn't done that. And it's so important that we also reach out to our families and say, he did well today, or you did great. Thank you for getting him here on time this morning. You know, I I know how hard it is for you. I know you're working until one o'clock in the morning and you're absolutely exhausted and you have to get on a bus. Well done. Thank you. I appreciate you. If if we are building each other up and taking care of each other, then we can only benefit. The pointing of fingers has to stop. We're all here trying to get to the same end result that the child is making the most out of their day in school. Yes, I have a friend who got those text messages, your son did this, your son did that. And it was never positive. And she was like, I can't take it anymore. I can't, I, I, I can't read these text messages. So she took her name off to have just her husband receive the text messages because it was all negative, 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 negative. Come get your child. When that happens, it's disheartening and it's not getting to the root of the problem. It's just saying, It's blaming somebody else for the problem. Behavior doesn't happen without reason. There is always a reason. There is a, it's, we, in education, we say a function of the behavior. What triggered this behavior? What happened? Why is this child behaving in this way? You know, you can always look at what happened before the behavior, what happened after the behavior, what happened during the behavior to figure out exactly what it was that triggered the behavior. But it's definitely not the mom who's at work who triggered that behavior, right? It may be that the child came in in the morning and there was a problem in the morning. And then we do need to talk to the parent and say, hey, what's happening before your kid comes to school? How can we help you with that so that the child comes in feeling calm and happy? Do you want us to meet him at the gate so we can help him calm down? Has he had breakfast? Are you okay? Is there something going on at home that we can help you with? Those are the kind of conversations we need to be having with our parents, not Joey just broke the bathroom toilet seat, Mm -hmm. come and get your kid. That's not what we need to be saying. We need to be saying, we're noticing that he's being a little bit violent at the moment. How can we help? How can we come together and help him with this? What do you think is triggering it? What do we think is triggering it? What happened right before he did that? What happens now after he's done that? Let's talk about that and figure this out. 
it, it sounds easy. You know, when I say it like that, I don't want to make it sound like, oh, it's so easy. This is such a quick fix. We just, you know, <laughs> yeah. figure out the behavior. It's not. Behavior is really, really challenging. But there's no point in addressing behavior by by pointing fingers at each other. You know, we yeah. have to always put the child first and really look at what they're going through and how we can help them as a team. Yeah. And especially again with COVID-19, a lot of the, the fears and frustrations that us as parents may have, the, the, the children are hearing that. And just imagine if I'm like so fearful or think, Oh my gosh, is COVID whatever, some craziness. What, what are your kids thinking? And a couple weeks ago saying, said to me, Hey mom, do you know if you, have a germ, you could spread that germ to everyone in the world and they can die. And I was like, okay, talk to me about that, David. (laughs) Why did you say that? (laughs) And that's a really wonderful approach, by the way, like tell me more (laughs) is such a good way of approaching a child. So well done on that level. Um, Our counselors are very, very busy right now. Our, our, our social emotional needs for our students are very, very high. And also for our families as administrators at our schools, we've been trying to make as many calls each week to as many families as we can just to check in and make sure that they're doing okay. Um, and, you know, we're, we're trying to sort of pull out of them. What do you need? What's your biggest need right now? Is it food? Is it, uh, are you, are you able to manage your bills? Um, is it health? Is it academics? Is it behavior? Like what, what is going on? You know, what, how can we help you? What should our focus be for our families? Um, and our families are actually pretty resilient and a lot of them are doing very, very well. Um, but they do really need someone to talk to. And their biggest uh, area of need is loneliness and feeling isolated mm-hmm. and wanting to talk to other people and other families. And we're really trying to connect our families virtually so that they can share what's going on. A lot of our families are staying home because they're really frightened to go out. So they don't go out at all. Um, maybe the dad goes to work and he does the grocery shopping and he also does the laundry and he comes through the door and he leaves his clothes at the door every day jumps straight in the shower and everybody just stays home. You know, that's a whole new world. I've never lived in that world. You've never lived in that world. It's a very, very different world. Um, In many ways, some of our kids respond well to that because it's comforting and and safe feeling, Um, but it's also unrealistic. And all of those strong skills that we've taught our kids to be resilient and to feel confident going to school and you're safe, don't worry um, be independent, all of those things that we've wanted to teach our kids, we're now taking those back because we're afraid. And so there is a really strong need for social emotional support for families, for children, and especially as we transition back to live school where kids will be going to school one or two days a week, probably when we go back in the fall. Uh, we're really going to need to focus on that social emotional piece because many of our kids, it's going to be like they're back in kindergarten and many of our families too, you know, saying goodbye to their kids and being terrified as to whether they're going to be exposed to COVID is, is, is a really, truly frightening idea. So we're going to have to be very, very careful around that. And our counselors are going to have their hands full. Oh, yes, most definitely. I'm afraid. I was scared that they would say, come back uh, May 15th. And I was like, if it's May 15th, I'm not sending my child back to school. I know. It was a fear of mine. And rightly so. I mean, I know that I think it's good that we didn't go back before this, before the end of the school year. Uh, it's given schools time to really think of plans of what it's going to look like when we do go back in the fall. And it's given families time to understand a little bit more about what their lives are going to look like. Um, but, you know, we do have to protect our most at risk. So if we do have children with health problems or families with health problems that could be heavily impacted, should COVID be transmitted to their home, then we are going to have to provide an alternative for them as well. Also, with older students, I'm finding that they're fearful of, or they're they're sitting in fear because their parents might have lost their job and they can't buy food and and they're worried about their parents versus them trying to graduate. 
Yeah, the economic impact of COVID is very real as well for many of our families, particularly in in LA. Um, uh, We're going to have to be very, very conscious of how we can support those families. We're going to have to look for um, places that we can recommend for them to go to get additional support um, and just find ways to come together as a community to support each other and get through this. I know that um, LAUSD and many other schools in Los Angeles has done a really wonderful job about handing out food mm-hmm. for our families. And I know that's yes. safe of our families having that resource. So I think that's wonderful that we've been able to do that. Um, but we do, ha- we're going to have to think about other things more than that, how else we can help our families, um, and, you know, schools already take on a lot of responsibility in a community. So mm-hmm. now with this added um, sort of idea that we have to solve all these other problems and all the budget cuts that we're looking at, schools are, are oh going to be very goodness. challenged when we go back next year. It is. But I know we're resilient enough to come up with an action plan and help our families, help our communities, help our schools and teachers and administrators that are trying to help us. If anyone can do it, it's teachers. You, you know, people, <laughs> people, people who choose to be teachers are really quite special human beings. And they really have such a strong skill set when it comes to problem solving uh, and multitasking that I have no doubt that our teachers will be able to, to support our families. Where do you see our school district going or or what the landscape of the future schools will look like? It's a very difficult question to, uh, to answer um, with not knowing where we'll go with COVID. But I do think that it's very important that we start to look at schools as a hybrid of in-person and virtual learning so that when things like the pandemic that we're going through now come up in the future, because this is not the last time it's going to happen, that we can very easily switch to virtual learning platforms. And I think we need to prepare our students and our families to be able to support that kind of learning. We were very unprepared for this. Uh, We haven't been thinking of education as something that we need to do from a distance. We've always thought about doing it in front of our students. Um, And, you know, there are silver linings to this. We may grow exponentially in how we deliver instruction and our kids may grow from that. Uh, Many of our students actually are doing much better in the distance learning program than they are in person, Uh, especially many of our students with special needs because they they are home, they're calm, they're not being um, becoming upset by additional stimuli that are in the classroom um, and they're they're independent. They're able to work at their own pace. They're able to choose what they do and when they do it. And so we've learned a lot about our students with special needs during this distance learning time as well. Oh, very interesting. So talk about the sensory part of it. Um, I guess, how do you find out what they're more prone to be aggravated ag- uh, about than not, I guess? If that's a correct question. So typically, if there's a student in the classroom who is being triggered, so you, I say triggered, meaning that their behavior changes to such a point that it's no longer feasible for them to be learning in the classroom, right? So they may be doing things like tearing up papers or turning over desks or pulling things off the walls or being aggressive to peers or to other adults in the classroom. So they're triggered by something that's happening in the classroom. So there's a lot of observation that goes on when a student behaves that way in a classroom. Um, We call it an FBA, which is a functional behavior assessment. So we're looking at what is triggering the child in the classroom. And then once we've figured out what it is that's triggering the child, we try and minimize that so that the child doesn't respond in, in the same way. Um, it's easier said than done um, because there are many things that trigger children in classrooms that you can't take away or you can't minimize. And then we have to do something like cognitive, cognitive behavioral therapy where we expose the child to the thing that triggers them until it doesn't trigger them anymore. For families at home uh, who 
on who don't know all about that, who haven't been educated on how their child responds. It can be super challenging and they can say, whoa, all of a sudden I have these behaviors at home because they're asking their kids to do work that they don't want to do. Maybe their child hates holding a pencil and that's overly impactful in a sensory way that they really don't want to hold the pencil. And we know what to do in school. We'll say, okay, take a break from the pencil. How about you type or how about you use your finger to draw? You know, we'll find different ways of helping the child express themselves. Parents may not have those tools available at home and then they'll see their child exploding at home and they've never seen that happen before. And they're like, oh, this is what the teacher was talking about. I've never seen this before. Or it could be that at home, in school, the parent has had lots and lots of those horrible text messages saying, come and get your kid. And then at home, yes. the child is, is totally fine. And it's like, well, what's going on? Well, you've taken away the stimuli that were in the classroom that were aggravating him. He's now got much more freedom. He's just, you're just, he's home with you. There's no one annoying him. There's nobody pushing him or pressurizing him. And now he's doing really well. So what did we learn? That child needs to be in a cl- either in a classroom in a smaller setting. Maybe virtual learning is better for him, or maybe it's a hybrid. Some of the time he's in the classroom with the other kids. And then when he has things that are really hard for him to do, he gets some independent time in a quiet corner where he can work by himself. Very interesting. All right. So those were great tips for parents. What about students that are navigating through COVID-19? What kind of tips can you provide uh, for them? Uh, learning online? Um, I think they have to set some goals to begin with. I think, first of all, they have to say, okay, my goal is that I'm going to do 80% of the work that I'm assigned. And then they have to stick to it. And they have to set definite times during the day when they're going to be working. It's much like us as adults. You know, if we just say, oh, I've got all the things to do and I give no structure, and then we're not going to get it done. But uh, I think it's it's really setting a goal. It's being disciplined with time um, and it's being realistic as well. I would highly recommend as much communication with your teacher as possible. Um, the more that teachers understand what you're going through, the more understanding they will be with you and the more appropriate types of assignments they'll give you so that you can be successful. Our teachers want to help you at They want to be there for you. They want to see you feeling successful, safe, and healthy. And you have to talk to them. And if you have to say, you know, I am bouncing around between houses all day. I don't have access to the computer because my sister and my brother have to use it. And then my mom uses it later. What can I do? And the teacher will Mm -hmm. work with find what you're able to do, what work completion you can do. The worst thing you can do is go MIA and not do anything and not talk to your teacher and really fall behind. It is going to impact you. You may not be getting an official report card this trimester, but it is going to be your engagement in what's been assigned. It will be reflected somewhere. One thing that you just brought up, I can't remember if it was the superintendent of schools that said that no kid is going to flunk a grade. What do you think about that? I think that that's a fair call. Um, I don't really love sweeping statements when it comes to students, like all kids or no kids. I like independent Mm -hmm evaluation of a child's needs much more than that. But, you know, in these unprecedented times, I understand how people are just trying to put some boundaries in place. Um, I think sometimes retention for students is really good for them. It really depends on the child. Typically, it's not my choice to retain a child. I, I do think that there's a body of evidence that would support retaining a child when they're younger rather than when they're older. But it's more difficult to retain a child when they're younger because you don't see how far behind they really are. Um, I don't think many children would suffer from doing kindergarten twice or even first grade twice. But when you're in third grade and you've been with that group of kids from kindergarten till third grade and then you're asked to do third grade again and everybody else moves up, that's really, really socially challenging. Mm -hmm. And it's hard for everybody. Um, And, you know, it also destroys this community that we're trying to build within parents and children and teachers. If you get pulled out of that community and thrown into another grade community, then that's really difficult. Um, I do think that because we did not complete our third trimester in schools, it would be unfair 
to retain the students who are sort of borderline, should they be retained or not. But if there are students who really are struggling in school and everybody on the team feels like it's important for that child to redo that grade level, or they've been they've made more growth in that grade level than they ever have before. And you can see a huge benefit to them doing that grade level again so that they can catch up and then move forward and be effective in future years. Then then it's something that should be considered, but it has to be looked at from all points of view. And parents should really have the biggest say in it, honestly. It's it's such a personal thing whether a child is retained or not, and we want to empower our parents. They know their kids the best. They know what's right for their kids. They can listen to all of the specialists in the room and you know educate themselves on what might be good for their child, but ultimately, I think it really has to be their decision. Kat, when I first heard that, I thought of uh, the participation trophies that are often given in schools. But the way you say it, I understand it better. So thank you. It's it's hard. It's very it's hard. I mean, and don't even get me started on participation trophies <laughs> and you know, how, how we're going to, um, you know, we ha- we've in the past, we've had awards at school for t- perfect attendance. How on earth could we possibly continue with that award during COVID-19? That's just not possible. Mm-hmm. Already I have problems with perfect attendance because we don't want kids coming to school if they're sick, right? I know. It, it's really hard for parents. They're like, I don't want to send him to school, but he wants the perfect attendance award. And then they're, you know, stuck in this horrible decision. Like, do I send him to school? And then we get the whole of kindergarten sick or, or not. And those kind of awards are definitely going to have to go away it, it, during this but, time. But also there, what... I found out is that if your child doesn't go to school, then the school loses out on funding. So therefore it's a rigmarole of like, Oh my gosh, should I send my son to school or keep him at home and that they lose funding and then we lose a teacher. It's maddening. It really is. And you know, the way that schools are funded in California is it, it it's exactly what you said. The child has to attend school for the school to get the funding, um, which is why you will see administrators calling families saying, where's your child? Why isn't he in school? Um, because ultimately it cuts the school's budget by such a huge amount when we have high absences. Um, that may need to be looked at next year in California because how are we going to enforce attendance? Even now, how can we possibly enforce attendance? And the it's called ADA. So the ADA funding has been changed this last trimester. So based on the average attendance for the rest of the year, that's how funding has been made for this last trimester in, in public schools in California. Um, I don't know how they're going to do it next year. I would hope that they would say, based on the number of students enrolled, your funding will remain the same based on that number of students enrolled. But I I have no idea what they're going to do about that. But it is, that's a huge pressure for teachers, administrators, and families. You know, if your kid doesn't go to school and they're sick, the school's not going to get any money. And it's a lot of money for a a daily attendance. Yeah, it is. Yeah. When we first uh, switched our son to this one particular school in uh, West Hollywood, they were saying that the absences were enough money to fund one teacher, you know, for the year. And I was like, oh, my gosh, my heart. It's like, I wish I had the money to say, here, let's write a check right now. And, you know, let's not worry about this anymore and continue with schooling. But, you know, that's not what reality is. No. No, funding is very, every state has different funding for education, as I'm sure you know. And there are great things in some states and terrible things in some states. Um, the attendance piece is really challenging in California. And then funding for students with special needs is also very challenging in California. We don't get very much money for our students with special needs. And that would be something I would love to advocate for that we we are awarded more funding. So talk about that aspect of socializing with other peers or what the developments are in the student with special needs. There is much evidence that students with special needs function better when they are with typical peers. Not only do they have somebody to 
model for them certain behaviors or certain responses to assignments, but they have um, relationships that they build that help them move through life more effectively. So when we see children out in the world who have disabilities, they are typically surrounded by typical people who do not have a disability, right? So why then in school would we want to put them just with other students who have disabilities, right? Mm -hmm. Because then there's no one there guiding them or helping them or collaborating with them so that they can move forward. So it's a very difficult decision. It's very, it's not easy to integrate all students into a general education setting, um, especially on a budget because it requires more people and it's expensive. Um, but that should never come into play into a decision on whether a child should be placed in a gen ed setting or not. Shouldn't be about the money. It should be about the child always. That said, you can't also sink the school district by the number of people that you have to employ to support that philosophy. So there's a lot of balancing to do as an administrator in finding like the best environment for all of these students, but also being able to survive within the budgetary confines that are given to us. Yes. Uh, ESPN has a program with the Special Olympics that makes sure that everybody comes together and plays together as one, no matter if you have a disability or not, which helps improve skills. And and it's awesome. Yeah, it is. It, it's, a lo- it's a lot of work and it takes a lot of training to do it really effectively. We ask our classroom teachers an awful lot, uh, to do an awful lot. We really do. Um, You know, we want them to meet that middle band that we have designed curriculum for. We also want them to be able to support our gifted students who also have special needs in many ways. And we want to push them as hard as we can in school. And then we want them to integrate our students who are struggling. We want them to teach our students with English language learning learning development. We want them to, to manage all of these students with special needs who have all different learning disabilities and create an environment and a classroom where they can all be successful and they we want them to do it all by themselves yeah i think uh experience we see how valuable a teacher is and how much is put on the shoulders of teachers every single day and they go there with their hearts open wanting to teach your kids and they might be hit with criticism or this or blame or this or but not knowing how much is on their shoulder and i think this is showing families what exactly is happening with our educational system and what we need to do as parents to step up and help our teachers. It's so critical in a time like this. Yeah, I'm sure there are hundreds of thousands of teachers applauding all over the country right now hearing you say that. Um, I do think that having spoken to many of our families, our families are really grateful um, for our teachers and they're learning anew how hard it is to be a teacher. And I've heard many parents say, I just don't know how our teachers do this. You know, I've got two children at home and I can't get them to do anything. How on earth do our teachers do, you know, teach 26 kids or 30 kids? Um, Right. Something else that's really interesting is that school provides an element of daycare for our children. Um, And I hate to think of school in that way, but, you know, that's the way the world works. And I do, it's a service that is provided for families. And I think that many of our families are really noticing that, wow, teachers take care of our kids every single day and they do their absolute best for these children and they're not paid well at all. Mm -mm. Um, In fact, they're paid less than many parents (laughs) and they're taking care of 26 to 30 of those kids. Um, So I do hope that it that it um, creates this sort of foundation of appreciation for teachers and how hard teachers work and how committed and what wonderful people they are to be supporting children. Um, And I hope it, it it moves people to to vote for people who will provide more funding for education because that's really what's needed. We need, we need more money. It's, it's very, very hard to do this on the budget that we're given. 
Yes, absolutely. Thank you again. Kat Mayer is the director of special education and she has all what you need. Surprise, you're a teacher. Insight into virtual teaching and learning. Kat, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you for sharing your time and your expertise. Oh, thank you so much. It was a real pleasure speaking to you. You've been listening to The Experience with Laverne Cusack. Getting the residents of Los Angeles, Orange County, and all of Southern California closer to their community. It's The Experience with Laverne Cusack on 710 ESPN.